Welcome to Conversations with Leaders. I'm Wesley Story. I'm an enterprise strategist at AWS. Today, I'm joined with Amy, and I'd like you to introduce yourself a little bit, Amy, because I don't want to take that from the audience, and I'd love you to tell me about your role at Autodesk, and give me a little background if you would. Great. So I'm Amy Bunzel, obviously, and I'm the executive vice president of our architecture, engineering, and construction design solutions tools. And so what my team does is we build software for people in the AEC industry, working on um, everything from roads, bridges, highways, water infrastructure, um, stadiums, pretty much everything in the built environment. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I had no idea that you had such a, a massive scope, quite frankly. So how do you balance all that? Well, I have a really great team working for me. Um, so I spend most of my time thinking about, you know, the broader strategic, longer term aspects of what we're trying to do and also with customers. It's super exciting to visit our customers. You gave the favorite answer that I have, teams, because it always starts <laughs> with teams, right? It does. So Amy, as a leader, you've talked a lot about being an innovator and risk taker at heart. However, as you know, sometimes risk taking can be risky. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about how you actually came up with that leadership style and what it means to your business. So for me, risk isn't about being reckless. It's about really thinking about innovation and exploration and experimentation and really thinking about um, different ways to try to learn and develop. And so I find that if we are open to the experimentation and we're thinking about what our outcomes are gonna be, and if we're not hitting them, then it's a matter of just reorienting. So it's not about taking a risk um, that's so big, you know, you, you're gonna put the company at risk or a team or a product at risk, but it's really about taking the kind of risk that you can learn from and then build upon as you go forward. You know, one thing I run into with some customers, especially those that wanna emulate this whole, you know, technology industry thing of failing fast, right? Yes. Is, is, is culture. And how do you create that culture where failure feels safe for people? And also, if I, if I can add this one more thing, because of your industry, you might relate to this, is some industries feel like failure is not an option, like mm -hmm. it's, it's an evil thing. Tell me a little bit about how you've created that culture that, that makes that okay. It's a it's an interesting thing and it's changed over the years for me because I think seven or eight years ago there was this whole, you know, fail fast. And we want as leaders were like, it's okay to fail. And my team would be looking at me like I was a crazy person because who wakes up in the morning thinking, I'm gonna fail? You know, <laughs> right. you got a bunch of A players, people really excited about what they're doing, and you're telling them that they should fail. So we've kind of moved away from that language and we talk more about experimentation. So again, it's about um you know, giving people the freedom to go and explore something, but also not having having expected outcomes. So, you know, all right, we tried this. We were hoping this would happen. It didn't happen. We learned this. So we're going to stop now where I had I struggle the most with teams that don't ever want to give up. Mm -hmm. Right. They're so attached to an idea that they've lost track of what they were trying to explore. Mm -hmm. And they're just, you know, kind of they're going to tough it out. It's and almost it's, like their baby at some point. It is. Yeah. And sometimes it was just not the right idea. And that's where I think it's harder. So, OK, we're going to stop doing that. Right. Because that's just as important as what you start and continue doing is what you decide to stop doing. I love the approach. And and I, I resemble that approach, too, because in a culture I worked in, we actually talked about learning fast. And there's probably boundaries to those things, too. Yes. Right. You're not going to experiment on everything. Well, yes, because we have, um, again, this the risk and the reckless piece. Right. Mm -hmm. You need to know where you're taking risk and that you're not, you know, you know, taking so much risk that there's going to be these devastating consequences. Can you give me a practical example in your industry where you might not take a risk? Um. Wow. Yeah, I think for us, you know, um, security. Um, data privacy, our customers are building, you know, everything from, you know, stadiums to nuclear power plants to all kinds of, you know, incredible things. And that's their intellectual property. 
So we would never take any risk involving their um, you know, security of that data, privacy of that data. That certainly makes sense to me. So let's move to the next question. Uh, when I think about um, innovation, by the way, which by the way, you said, you said that's something that is, is coming mm -hmm. from the heart for you. How do you create a culture where they feel empowered to innovate too? Because risk-taking and, and, and experimentation is one thing, but when you think about breaking out of the norm, that's yep. a whole nother process. Tell me, tell me about that a little bit. So we have a couple things that we do. Um, sometimes we intentionally incubate something and we kind of, we, we actually have a pitch process where employees will give pitches about incubating a new idea that might get us to a new persona or a new business. And so we will kind of wall them off and give them you know, the freedom to sort of roam around and do things a little differently than we would with the rest of the business. And then again, have outcomes that we judge them against, almost like a VC would evaluate. Yes. You're like, okay, you hit this, yeah, you hit this stage. Now we'll give you more investment to get to the next stage. And then we also have innovation that happens across all of our core products, more of the incremental innovation. And that's really a matter of aligning that innovation to customer outcomes and thinking about, well, if we could figure out a way to do this, you know, how might we maybe do something with machine learning that would get our customers, you know, a better outcome faster. One of the learnings I had in that kind of um, innovation space when you do these types of pitches is there's a feedback loop that I found is important to get your employees really jazzed about that, right? Yep. Because sometimes if they give those ideas and those pitches, but they don't see what happens next, they lose interest, right? Yes. So what do you do around that? We have a framework that kind of like a scorecard. So they'll know what, if, if how close they came to hitting what we were looking for. So mm -hmm. it might be in a particular um, pitch round, we're looking for innovation, maybe in construction or innovation in manufacturing or in a certain, um, type of persona. So that way we can kind of let them know how they kind of stacked up. Um, and then also our ability to sort of execute. And is that a business we want to be in? You know, sometimes we get pitches for things that are so interesting, but like, yeah, maybe we don't want to build a dating app or right. maybe we don't want to build you know, <laughs> something that's just so orthogonal to our business. Amy, one thing I like to ask leaders is about their feedback style. Can you tell me a little bit about your feedback style? Absolutely. And I learned this from very early in my career, and it's really about in the moment feedback mm. so that you know, people aren't surprised three months later when you know it's a formal process and they're hearing about something that happened a while ago. So timely. So timely feedback. I think giving feedback when something is a small problem instead of when it becomes like a big issue is really important. Mm -hmm. And then I also try to focus it on themes or patterns because I find when you give feedback, people always want to know like, well, what, give me an example of that like one time when that happened. And sometimes that's hard to do, mm -hmm. but and I think it's more significant if you give people feedback on things that are sort of like, patterns that you're seeing so that they can maybe understand like what's the root cause behind this pattern and how do we work to to address that. I love that. I, I had the same coaching at some point around not just the timing, but also the the patterns. Because you're right, people respond better when you can give them something they can relate to and actually go, ah, yeah, you're right. I remember that. You know what I mean? Yep. One other thing I'd like to ask you is about your background. You have an interesting background. You were an application engineer. You've worked in product. You've uh, interfaced with sales, I believe. Mm -hmm. So I'd imagine having those various experiences helps you see around corners. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. So one of the great things about my experience is I've been in multiple industries, but also different roles mm -hmm. throughout, um, throughout the software industry. And one of the things that helps me do is sort of anticipate how some a decision we might make um, based on what's maybe 
makes sense to like a development organization or building a certain capability, how that will play out, you know, across the entire ecosystem. So, you know, what might the customer reaction be? How would the sales reaction be? Are there, you know, maybe we're trying to do a new business model. Is it going to go through the system, you know, in a good way? Are we going to need to drive a, a change management process or something around that? So right. it gives me empathy for what others, how others are going to experience a particular decision or action. Another one of my favorite words, empathy. <laughs> so you brought, you didn't bring this up, but I'm going to bring this okay. up. Um, you mentioned that you've been in multiple industries. And I find that some people are Boolean about their opinion on, do they want industry depth and experience or do they want breadth? Yes. You know, because there's benefits to both. And I think it's an and, but what, what's your opinion on that? You know, I think it's an and, and, and you have to know where you have gaps and then surround yourself with people who fill those gaps for you. So uh, three or four years ago, I was running a team that had media and entertainment products, mm -hmm. which are like super fun. Yeah. Um, we had all the architecture and engineering products and also manufacturing products. And so, you know, do, am I an expert at all three of those? No. But um, do I understand, um, you know, the customer pain points, the problems we're trying to solve for customers? Do I know how to relate to the teams that are building these products? Yes. And then I bring in the experts. I don't get involved. I don't try to, you know, opine on things where I'm not, you know, I'm not really qualified to do so. I, I leverage the experts for that. So I guess your key recommendation or insight for people that also have multiple industry experiences would be that last part around, mm -hmm. you know, surrounding yourself with the right people, knowing when you don't need to know everything. Yep. Yep. Right. And knowing what your, what your strength is, what you're bringing to the, to the party sort of, you know, are you there because you're great at, um, you know, what you were talking about seeing around corners? Are you there because you're really good at driving the execution, motivating the team, building the strategy, figuring out like what your role is, in any particular initiative is key. So one of the things that happens is when you can see around corners, sometimes you um, can understand and kind of predict what's going, how people will react to certain ideas. Also, given your experiences, I'd imagine you can give messages to other parts of the business or empathize, use that word, yes. empathize with other areas of the business. Tell me more about how that helps you interact with your other leaders. Well, sometimes we're doing things that are challenging for other teams. Like we might be in introducing a new business model or a new product offering and understanding if what we're asking the other teams to do is is challenging, is difficult, is maybe um, going to distract them from their own goals is really important. So because you might get a negative reaction and, you know, this you might not understand why. Mm -hmm. So thinking about how to put yourself in the other person's shoes and think about the impact that whatever initiative you're driving might be having on them allows you to have a, a, a more, I think, helpful conversation and figuring out you know, how you can work together to get to the common goal. I'd love to hear your insights on a specific example between product and engineering, because that's one of those areas that sometimes have interesting tension. So actually, great areas around technical debt. There's, I love this one already. You know, the, <laughs> you know, the development organization would love to go in and, you know, fix everything that wasn't Clean it all built up. perfectly. Instantly. Like, yes, yeah. let's just keep cleaning things up. Mm -hmm. And and in many ways, that does benefit customers. Like things get faster, easier to use, more modern. But, However, yep. you also need to be building new value mm -hmm. into the products. So having that tension between, yes, we need to invest some amount in, you know, hygiene, modernization, technical debt, but also we need to be keeping an eye on the future, the competition, future customer requirements. Those are the interesting tensions where I think sometimes those decisions have to get escalated so that others can be involved in them. So in my role, we run into a lot of companies that are struggling with that part mm -hmm. alone. Like, is there any insight you could give them? And, and, you know, because I get it from both sides. I get when I talk to CIOs or CTOs, sometimes 
their their engineering teams are struggling because they're like, look, I just don't have the opportunity to clean up the technical debt yeah. because it's feature, feature, feature. But I also get it from the other side where they're like, look, I need this feature velocity because we've got these certain customer needs out there and you guys keep trying to slow us down with these, you know, <laughs> right? So so yes. what 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 inside? What's the what's the what's the game changer here? Well, what's worked for me is really trying to frame things for all the stakeholders. Because you have uh, thinking about like what's good for the company, what's good for the customer, what's good for the employees. So if if our if our developers are 20% slower because the code base is aging in some way, maybe investing a little bit in making them more productive, right? Makes them happier, builds up velocity, delivers more capability to the customers in the end. So having a little bit of a longer term view and then also thinking about like who are your stakeholders and how will they benefit from any particular initiative that you're doing. So Amy, Autodesk has sustainability as a corporate imperative. And I imagine it shows up in lots of different ways from how you guys think about products to how you run your business. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Absolutely. So yes, as a company, you know, we're, you know, carbon neutral, we were doing all of the important things that the companies do in that space. But I think more importantly, the impact we can have with our customers and helping them achieve more sustainable and resilient outcomes is really where we're different from a lot of other companies. We've been talking about sustainability for far more than 10 years before it was you know, fashionable to talk about. And what's interesting with our products is we help customers um, really reduce carbon, you know, create more resilient buildings, um, lightweight things, so they're easier to ship around the world. There's just a whole lot of positive outcomes that we can help deliver. And we have a couple um, key initiatives. One is around um, total carbon. So more and more these days, people are realizing it's not just the air conditioners and the heating systems that contributes to the carbon in a building. It's, it's all of the materials you chose to build that building with and how far did they come to get to the building. That's really called embodied carbon. And then there's this thing called um, operating carbon. And so the built environment is contributes the most to um, greenhouse gases of, of anything, um, any producer at all. So we're really partnering up with our customers to try to figure out how we can build you know, more sustainable buildings. Is there a lesson you've learned to, you know, keeping sustainability front and center? Wow. You know, it, it's interesting. It has to really be, it, it's also good for business. That's really the, if, when it more. was just, you know, I think there was a time where people felt sustainability was just there, you know, mm. to tick a box and, you know, make people feel good. But really it's good for business and it's, and it's good for the planet. I think a good example is um, we look at um, building product manufacturers and people that provide all the concrete drywall things for buildings. These days, architects and owners are choosing suppliers based on how green they are. So if, you've, if you're ignoring that, you're not going to be selected. But if you're delivering 25% less carbon emissions than the person down the road, you're going to get selected to, be, um, to have your materials leveraged in that project. So that's, that's real. So when thinking about product strategy, um, how does sustainability influ influence how your team approaches it? So it all kind of goes back to the customer and you know what customer problems are we trying to solve? What outcomes are we trying to help them help them deliver? And so these days, carbon's a big deal, but some of the other um, items that are really important is on the other end of the, of the life cycle is operating the building or the facility. And so we've been hearing a lot from customers that they would like to adopt some of the kind of manufacturing practices with digital twins into the um, building space. And so, we're working with them to figure out how we can help them operate better and you know save money and um, you know 
use those resources on that side of things. Tell me more about that. That's something I get the chance to talk to a lot of customers about, but everyone might not fully understand what it is. So could you first start with what is a digital twin? So a digital twin is effectively a, a um, digital representation of a physical thing. Mm-hmm. So it could be um, anything from a, you know, it could be a simple Excel spreadsheet that sort of has all the parameters you need for your physical object, or it could be a full-on three-dimensional model of a building um, connected up to sensors that tell you, you know, how hot is it in the building? You know, where are the people in the building? Are these conference rooms utilized very often? All kinds of information that you get off of um, sensors as well. All of this put together in a in a visual representation so that you can do things like predictive maintenance, um, renovations, optimizations, um, really to drive the most efficient and effective spaces. So a virtual representation of a physical something Mm -hmm. or entity, if you will. And it sounds like lots of data. And my favorite thing about data is when you put it to action. So you started to allude to that, but what are some of the other things you can do to put this data into action? So you can, you can definitely drive a lot of insights out of that. And you can, you can, um, you might be wanting to figure out how to configure a space for, you know, maybe you have underutilized areas of your facility mm-hmm. and you don't know why. So you could actually play around with reconfiguring it in different ways and then watch the traffic and see how the utilization might change. And that in turn might inform your next project where you might be making different decisions about how you use the space. So it's it's being able to sense and respond to different you know, external factors and predicting outcomes and also making these automatic or, or autonomous decisions. Yep. Is that something you're seeing as well? Yes, it is. In particular, um, you know, because you, they're operating large scale facilities, even if you were to think of like a, like a hospital, for example, mm-hmm. um, and understanding all of the different componentry equipment in there and like how often does it need to be refreshed? Do you have it on order? Is it a critical piece of equipment that might, you know, be ready to fail? Do you have a backup? All these things can be be planned in mass, like on, you know, hundreds of facilities. So it's not the sort of bespoke labor of a manual operation. It's, it really can be done at scale quite broadly. So in considering digital twins and all the vast amounts of data that comes from digital twins or actually supports them rather, some of the problems that some companies run into is how do you actually manage all this data? How do you you know, manage it from a technical perspective? But let's not worry about that yet. Mm-hmm. Let's worry about the non-technical executives. What do you recommend to them when you think about how you organize around it, how you actually, you know, get analytics and insights out of it? What are some insights and thoughts you have there? So the most successful ways we've seen people start is with a pilot, thinking about either a particular facility or a particular aspect of that facility, and then trying to understand what is something that they wish they could drive as an outcome. Mm -hmm. And then it's a matter of let's just look for the data that supports that use case. And so you break it down so that um, you can build a cross-functional team that can then work together on this. And then once you have success there, you can find another challenge and another challenge. So you don't, you know, open it up and try to do everything. Don't boil the ocean. Yeah. Yes. So you probably won't be surprised at this, but I still run into a lot of companies that say, we got to build a data lake. Yes. And the first thing I ask them is why? Like, what are you trying to solve for? And I think the same, the same lesson is applied there as well is start with your insights, start with. What are the problems we're trying to solve? What are the use cases? Or in Amazonian speak, we like to work backwards from customer outcomes or problems. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a that's a lesson that we all need to kind of take heed to. Yes. Right? Well, and also, you will find out you don't have all the data that you want. Right. You have too much data that you're not using, but then you might be missing a key piece of data that you need to figure out how to go get. And that in itself is a big key learning. So, Amy, you guys have had a pretty big acquisition. Can you tell me a little bit about that and, and what they do and what's behind it? 
Absolutely. We did our first billion dollar acquisition, which my team drove. And that was really exciting, as you can imagine. And we acquired a company called Innovize. And Innovize builds software that does um, design of water systems and also digital twins for water ecosystems. So what an amazing time to be um, working in water. It's such an important and vital resource. And there's just so much work happening around the globe to fix problems and create you know, opportunities for people in terms of how they get their water supply. That sounds like a massive undertaking, not just the acquisition, but the mission of the business itself. Yeah, the mission of the business was very exciting for us because it very much aligns to really our core values and areas that we were working in already. But by buying Innovize, we connect that to the Autodesk portfolio. We really have an end-to-end -end solution for water now. So the two companies together, there was almost no overlap in what we were doing. So we're really coming to market with an incredibly strong story. And it's also an applied um, uh, example of like digital twin mm -hmm. in a specific industry that has a meaningful outcome. It's a great example of modernization too. So a lot of the digitization that needs to happen is in a lot of these water um, water municipalities. There's just a lot of aging infrastructure there and real opportunities to make an impact on um, you know less water lost in systems and delivering better experiences for everyone. And I think water is something that we can all relate to because we all need it, right? It's such a critical resource that has lots of shortages or all kinds of other issues in the world. But you mentioned that our, uh, our, our infrastructure, even the United States is older than people might think. So if you wire that up, it gives you tremendous insights, right? It does, because you, you can um, identify in advance where you might have problems, do maintenance in advance of problems. And if you think about the example I like to use is, you know, you're driving down the street, there's a sinkhole in your neighborhood, and, you know, all of the utility trucks and everyone else is there. Oftentimes that's because there was an undetected leak that went on for a long period of time. And when they finally realized it, it was, you know, very, very, very severe. Whereas with things like digital twins for water, you can identify these problems when they're tiny problems and get in and address them before they become big problems. That's tangible impact. Mm -hmm, it is. Kudos to you and the team on uh, that. Thank you. What do your folks feel about those types of products when you're able to launch those products and you see them actually starting to take hold into the marketplace? Oh, our, I mean, our team members are just delighted because I think, you know, the customer success stories when you start to see that, you know, you helped, um, there's a, a town in Ohio that had a horrible algae bloom that mm -hmm. um, Autodesk and Innovize before we were together um, were able to help the, the firm that cleaned this all up and built them a sustainable water ecosystem. So those are like, you know, heartstring tugging stories. And this is also a perfect example of innovation in action, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So this is a real world problem, an innovative solution where you apply a digital twin to a critical source like a resource like water. Yep. And now you've got a product, you, you acquired a company, you've got a massive product yep. around it. Um, tell me about the innovation cycle of taking that forward. How do you envision that going in the future? What's yeah. going to happen next? I will say one of the one of the key things that's accelerating all of this should be no surprise to you, but it is the cloud. Mm -hmm. And so getting all of this, you know, data in the cloud in an accessible way so that stakeholders, you know, all across a project who might be in some of these projects during COVID, the stakeholders weren't together. They were in like, you know, different countries, different states. So the ability to kind of leverage all this data in the cloud, work in the cloud, design in the cloud, and then also, you know, deliver these um, these digital twins and innovations through the cloud was absolutely critical. So I'm glad you brought that topic up, the cloud that is, because I usually don't bring those topics into my conversations because I don't want them to come off self-serving. Mm -hmm. But you brought this up for a reason, and I think there's something powerful behind that. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you guys were able to drive innovation in ways that you might not have otherwise been able to due to the things you get from the cloud? 
Yes, the the notion of a single coordinated model that is accessible to everyone working on a project is it, it just drives so much productivity. And that and I'll tell you that's because in the past people would have their own copies of these things, right? You'd have maybe three firms working on something, you'd have your copy, I'd have my copy. How were we sure that we were all working off of the same most up-to-date information? How did we, you know, communicate? That would be on like paper still mm -hmm. even today. So by by centralizing all of this people are able to work much more dynamically. They're able to actually build on each other's ideas and collaborate in real time by leveraging, leveraging the cloud. It also makes it easier to onboard new stakeholders and to leverage the data throughout the whole design you know, through construction process. And really, it used to be stacks and stacks and stacks of drawings. And it still is in some cases. Right. And you know, things get built in the wrong place and have to be torn up because people aren't working off the same coordinated information. So iteration and innovation, is that a play also? Does that help? It does because, you know, it's not, it wasn't, it's not just about um, putting the data in the cloud. Mm -hmm. It's okay. Now the that it's here, part. how do we make it more valuable? That's right. And that's where we're able to do things like um, analyze multiple projects and create maybe some insights across different types of projects saying, hey, projects that were maybe you use these suppliers were more successful than projects where you use those suppliers. And there's all kinds of insights that you can generate when you've got the aggregation of a lot of this data in one place. So overall, Amy, um, if you think to the future, fast forward however many years you want to think about, are there any words of wisdom or advice that you'd give to other leaders as they're contemplating all this? So when I think of the future, the first word that actually popped into my head was uncertainty because I never could have predicted, you know, the last two years. Yes. But um, I think many of us thrived through this period of constant change in the last two years. And for me, I think as leaders, if we learn to embrace uncertainty, but also help our employees, you know, have empathy for the employees, help them do their best work while they're navigating through the uncertainty and be open and, you know, take risks in the right places. I think, I mean, we're, we're doing, we're accelerating so many things that I, I, you know, I, that I don't think we thought we were going to previously. I mean, for us, it's the digitization of our entire customer base. Almost every customer I meet with has a strategy around digitizing some part of their business. So, and this was barely something we talked about two years ago. Only the most forward thinking talked about it two years ago. And now everybody's doing it. So that's the word of the day, uncertainty. I because think so. <laughs> it, it, I, I love it though, because if you think about, there's a, there's a phrase, the, the cone of uncertainty, right? Mm -hmm. You've yes, probably used that yes. before. And, and when I used to do roadmaps, that would be one of the things I often tried to explain to people is that, look, I can pretty accurately predict what's going to happen in the next 30, 60, 90 days with a good amount of precision. But as I start to get out beyond one or two years, that cone of uncertainty, mm -hmm. that effect starts to happen where I'm like, who knows what's gonna happen? Yeah. You know, you don't know, but then it's about how do you respond to it? How do you, how do you actually adjust appropriately? And also when we talk to a lot of executives around digital transformation in particular, um, sometimes there's a rigidness. And we have a phrase about being, um, you know, stubborn on the strategy, but flexible on the details. Yes. Right. And that's an important aspect there, in my opinion, as well, because when you think about the strategy, you got to be all in on that strategy, but you've got to be ready to pivot as the right situations yes. arise. Can you tell me your experience yes. with that? Well, 100 percent. I think the you need a long term vision that, that matches your strategy, that when people look beyond the maybe the messiness of the day to day and they see that long term vision, that's what's going to motivate them through the change and through the uncertainty and giving them the flexibility to on some of those details in the short term is super critical. But if everyone's got their eye on that North Star, like you'll get there and it will motivate them 
to, you know, to manage through some of that, some of those bits of uncertainty. So Amy, thank you so much for your time today. It's, it's often a privilege to be able to sit with people like yourself who have such accomplished organizations and great uh, successes. So it's great for us to be able to celebrate those successes with you. Congratulations to the work you guys have done at Autodesk and thanks so much for your investment of time today. Well, thank you too. I really appreciate the opportunity.